Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Dr. Fiona Pienar, the Senior Clinical Advisor for Mental Health Innovations, also known as SHOUT, our podcast partner, and previously worked at Place to Be as the Director of Clinical Services. Today's episode focuses on suicide and suicide de-escalation in particular. It is a very sensitive topic to navigate, but I feel it's important that we are all aware of what the warning signs are and what we can do to help someone who is suffering with depression and suicidal ideation. I'd love to start by asking you why you think suicide is becoming so prevalent, especially amongst the young. Well, I think, you know, it's what we call multifactorial. There's so many factors that are impacting on increases in mental health and challenges to mental health. And I would say things like, you know, the the pandemic has had a big impact, as we know, on mental health, the whole disruption to people's lives and to, especially for young people, social relationships, uh, isolation. That increase has led to a real need for more mental health support or more mental health care. And, you know, we know that there are a lot of people on waiting lists to get support. And so there are barriers to people getting care. There's lack of services. I would say things like stigma are still impacting on people's mental health um, so that they might be having thoughts of suicide, but might still hesitate to reach out. I think we've come a long way in terms of stigma. There's a lot more awareness and and that could also correlate with more people being on waiting lists because there is greater awareness. But yeah, I would say stigma is still a factor. You know, with the pandemic, as I mentioned, there's a lot of sort of what we call comorbid mental health challenges. So people struggling with anxiety and depression, substance use. We know that substance use disorders have increased as well. A lot of people self-medicating during the pandemic or just generally around their mental health. And that could put them more at risk if they've got those comorbidities. Things like the cost of living crisis, the economy, unemployment, although we know that unemployment is actually at an all-time low, I think, in the UK. A lot of young people worry about their future. And then the overall global challenges that we we are experiencing at the moment or have been experiencing for a while and concerns about the future, you know, the, the climate challenge the unrest in the world, the war in Ukraine, all of these factors, we actually don't always know why people make an attempt, more likely to know if they make an attempt, because of course we could speak to them after they, they have survived, but if they take their own lives, we don't always know. You know, there's usually multiple factors impacting on people. I mean, thank you for such a detailed answer. I I can't help but think that social media has a role to play and this exposure that we have to everyone and everything and this comparison that seems to have gone, this comparative nature that was on inside our heads has gone into absolute overdrive. I actually don't do social media myself for that very reason, but I think for anyone who is susceptible to mental health issues or who has mental health issues, it's just a completely toxic ingredient added to the mix, essentially. 
No, you make a, a really good point and good on you for, for bringing that one up because I also think it is a major factor. And there's a report that came out that was linked to an article in the Times this weekend about social media and the groups that are formed on, on TikTok specifically, this article. You know, the people, they are directed to these groups. Well, whether they are, they obviously are. This is what this report has found. Um, so that people can find groups, you know, that talk about suicide, can find groups that talk about eating disorder in a way that supports their thinking rather than gives them support to deal with their suicidation. Obviously, there are groups like that as well, but they're an alarming, I mean, the report is pretty alarming, I think, in terms of that, you're right, people find this information or their groups on social media, and that can put them at even greater risk. So, Fiona, you've worked at Place to Be, which does a lot of work in school playgrounds and is focused on children's mental well-being. I'd love to know your opinions on what we can do to help intervene effectively at an early age, especially given the adversities that a lot of children are now facing and then the pressures later on in their teenage lives and the, the careers that they're expected to do. And, and again, it feeds into the social media notion that we're all exposed to all these pressures and what we should be doing. What, what do you think are the effective tools that we can give these children and equip them later in life? Yeah, I think it's such an important question. I mean, Place to Be does a brilliant job of, of putting mental health support into schools um, and also training teachers and senior teachers and, and other staff on schools, you know, to have awareness about mental health. It's multifactorial again, you know. I think that uh, the earlier, the better. Um, I think developing children's emotional vocabulary at an early age is really important. A lot of children will talk about feeling happy, sad, mad, bad, good. you know, it's like a very basic vocabulary. It's a particular bugbear of mine for the, around happiness and striving for happiness and teaching children that that's what one of these happy all the time, whereas I'd like to see more focus on vocabulary like, you know, I feel content, I feel relaxed, I feel calm is another word, I feel calm. You know, so I think developing that emotional vocabulary and how you do that when children are really young is that you, like I said with my grandchildren, will say, you know, if a child's crying, they'll say, are you really sad or are you really angry that that happened or are you really frustrated? You know, so developing their vocabulary so they can actually learn at an early age to name how they're feeling or what their emotions are or, you know, to talk about their thoughts as well. And I think it's important for parents and teachers to model how they deal with stress and challenges, you know, not just come home and crack open the bottle of wine. I'm not saying a glass of wine isn't a good thing sometimes, but you know, for children to see, if you come home tired, to say, you know, I've had a really tough day, I'm feeling really tired and a bit overwhelmed, and what I need to do is go and sit and read the newspaper or whatever you do to relax. So I think modeling to children helps them develop skills to deal with adversities. So, and schools, I mean, I'm an ex-teacher many years ago, and I think a lot often comes down to teachers to, I guess, pick up the slack <laughs> And, you know, that's why there's a lot of training around mental health, you know, mental health first aid, those sorts of organizations, place to be trains, shark trains, all, you know, to help people develop awareness. I think that's really important. But schools also need funding to put services like place to be or like mental health support in schools so that while teachers can recognize if there's a problem, they can pass it on to a professional who will then be able to sort of interact with parents or provide support. Now, all fantastic 
really, really valid points. And I'm sure a lot of parents listening will find them incredibly helpful. And I also loved your point about parents. And I think this is something that still needs a lot of just attention, really, because I think a lot of people become parents, not really understanding the complexities of a child's mental health. And as you say, the importance of early years intervention. I mean, it's so important, Yeah, You know, we've got better at schools, much better, um, when I think back to my early days of teaching. But it can't all fall down to teachers and parents need support. You know, there's a lot going on. And oh, just the other point I want to make, Pandora, is, you know, we often talk about recognizing emotions, but we should also encourage children from an early age to talk about what thoughts they're having. You know, it's sort of three things that are interconnected, you know, your, your feelings, your thoughts and your behavior, and the one affects the other. So asking your child, you know, what are you thinking? That they feel, you know, they say, I feel sad. Or you reflect a feeling that you, an emotion you can pick up. I see you, you know, you're feeling angry. Can you tell me what you're thinking? You connect the f- emotion to the thought. Do you think schools are providing teachers with enough resources in order to be able to support students and to really pay attention to those who they feel are susceptible to developing anxiety or mental health issues? Or do you think that there's still a lot of scope for further training and more resources put towards that? You know, I'm quite a way out from teaching, but I do remember talking about how important it was to embed understanding and training about mental health in teacher training. And I'm pretty sure they do that these days. I always fall down on the side of the teachers. Having been a teacher myself, I don't think that there are, well, I'm I'm pretty sure there aren't enough resources in terms of human resources. Now, I remember working in a country where I became a specialized teacher in supporting children with learning and behavior challenges. And, And remember some of us who have psychology backgrounds saying, well, we can't deal with the learning and behavior unless we have explored the social and emotional, what's going on socially, what's going on emotionally, because that impacts their ability to learn and their ability to behave. So unless there's the support in there for teachers, obviously the training and the awareness so they can spot something, they're, they're vitally important. But they need support you know, for people to, professionals or people who are trained at some level to come in and and give that sort of one-to-one or group support, social and emotional support, and then maybe even it needs support for parents and carers. So um, yeah, they certainly are the front of the line, but you know, they can't manage everything. No. And I mean, do you think schools should be, do you think the government should be diverting more resources to schools and and mental health and well-being amongst children? I do. Because, you know, as I, I as I said, if you want children to be able to focus and learn, they need to be able to concentrate on that and not be, you know, if they've got something major going on in their life, they've been bullied or there's uh, some issue going on at home or they're lonely or they're feeling anxious or depressed, they're not going to be able to learn. So putting in the funding seems to me vitally important, putting in the funding to support them. And the earlier we intervene, the better, because the longer we leave young pe- children and young people struggling, the more entrenched it can become and the more maladaptive coping you know, strategies they, they pick up, whether that's self-medication, whether that's self-harm, you know, whether it's risk-taking behaviors. The longer that goes on, the more entrenched it becomes. So the earlier we intervene, the better. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, 
is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Moving on to talk more about suicide, what are the red flags that family members and friends should be aware of if they feel that someone close to them is susceptible to suicide? And who do you think are the people who are most susceptible to it? That is such a complex issue. Suicide assessment and suicide vulnerability, it's not an A plus B will equal C, not at all. I've read research which tells us that, you know, it's not always the high risk, the patients that are are assessed as being at high risk that actually then take their own lives. It can sometimes be those who are assessed at low risk. So it is an extremely challenging um, situation. But to go to your point about what should, um, you know, family look out for and friends, teachers, the people that know children and young people the best, I would say looking out for any changes, changes in behavior, like, you know, they become more extrovert, they're louder, their behavior becomes, uh, you know, difficult to manage, or they can withdraw into themselves and become very quiet. So there's no one way or the other either. It's just a change in behavior, and it can be subtle changes. It can be changes in sleeping patterns, changes in eating habits, changes in socializing. So if they perhaps were quite social, you know, and then suddenly they don't want to go out anymore. These are all signs that there's something worrying them or something that you should check up on. And, you know, not all, well, a lot of children or a lot of young people won't initially come out and say they're having thoughts of suicide. But for others, they might use euphemisms like, nobody will miss me if I'm not here anymore, or I don't want to wake up tomorrow, those sorts of euphemisms which are you know are giving us signs that there's something they're trying to tell us something without directly saying something Uh, and it might be that they say just to test out whether anybody's listening or anybody's noticing or hearing it's very hard to say who's most at risk but we know things like anxiety depression can put people more at risk previous attempts if they've made one attempt they can be more at risk self-harm can be a predictor well, let's look at it the other way. When we look at young people who take their lives, there is often a history of self-harm. So um, that can put them at risk. One of the most important things in mental health is connections. Lack of connectedness is a risk factor in life. It leads to isolation, loneliness. And I mean, if you look back at the pandemic, when people were locked down at home, that lack of connectedness was a major factor. And the other factor in those theories is burdensomeness, feeling like you're a burden. You know, it's like that comment, nobody will miss me. Often people who are sick can be at risk, you know, who have a chronic illness. Um, So there are many, many factors uh, that can put somebody at risk. But it's difficult to say one plus one equals that. Um, And then that person is definitely at risk because, you know, what puts young people at greater risk is that it's a very um, risk-taking and very impulsive, often, stage of development. And attempts often happen in in an impulsive moment. Yeah, no, and obviously coinciding with hormonal changes, I should imagine that impulsiveness is is even greater. Yeah, exactly. Have you noticed since the pandemic, and whether at MHI, you can identify whether a particular demographic 
has seen an increase in the spike in suicides or whether it's universally across the board in all age groups? Well, ironically enough, I just asked our head of data that question before I started talking to you on this podcast. And he said uh, it gets more likely as texters get older, but it's the top issue for all age groups. So since we launched in May 2019, suicide ideation has been our top presenting issue, and that's across all age groups. And he said it peaks at 25 to 34 and then drops off a bit. But, you know, it sort of goes between 36% and 40% of all conversations across since 2019 um, is the suicide ideation. So while I'm talking about that, let me just follow that up with how important de-escalation is because we actually only call in 2% of those to the emergency services so that they can follow up with a you know, medical response or whatever response it needs, uh, meaning that we work very hard on de-escalating, letting them feel connected, heard, etc. But yeah, it is our top presenting issue. And as he says, it sort of peaks at 25 to 34 but we do get 13 and under contacting us about having thoughts of suicide. Wow. I mean, it's shocking how young one can be to have those thoughts. And I, I do think that it is getting younger, sadly. Pandora, I think it goes to your point earlier about the impact of social media. And I look back to when I was that age, I don't think I heard the term suicide until I was sort of in my mid-teens. But with social media these days and, and greater awareness and people talking about it as an option when you're struggling, you know, I think that is because there's so much communication 24-7 these days. And with the young people, I think the average age used to be about 10 and a half to get a mobile phone, but we are getting eight and nine-year-olds texting us. And may I also say that they often text, we get eight, nine, ten-year-olds texting us at two o'clock in the morning. So their parents listening to this podcast, can I just say that all the advice by the American Pediatric Association, the BPS, all of these associations, don't let your children and your young people take their phones into their bedrooms at night because that means they never switch off and their sleep is interrupted and you actually have no idea what they're looking at and what they're listening to. And, you know, it does concern me that we get such young children talking about suicide. You do a lot at MHI and shout around de-escalation of suicide. I'd love for you to just talk us through what the key points you think we should all hear are around learning about de-escalation. If you end up talking to somebody, in our case, they text into our service. But if somebody, you ask somebody if they'd like to have a conversation or you, you know, are you all right? Are you concerned that you're concerned about them? If they respond, that's a very positive step. The fact that people text into our service, they may be having thoughts of suicide, but they, part of them has reached out and texted us or they phoned Samaritans or, you know, one of the other services that are available. That's a good sign. That's a sign that they, they want support. So a de-escalation, um, you know, is, that we focus on is in the first place, we, we try and build rapport. So we, we do that by introducing ourselves and, we ask them to text the first message before they get through to somebody is, you know, what is it that, you know, you want to talk about? So we may respond to that immediately or ask them to tell us a little bit about what's led them to text in. So it's that rapport building and that listening. I think part of de-escalation is being available and being focused on the person and listening to their story without being tempted to talk about yourself. 
you know, often when we're listening to somebody, we're already thinking about how this relates to ourselves and what we want to say about our experience in life. And, you know, in de-escalation, you really, I mean, sometimes an experience of yours can inform you about how you're going to respond, but focus on the person you're talking to, and that's what we do. Often when somebody's highly stressed, their thoughts are just all over the place, and we try and help them identify what's the main thing they want to focus on. So you can say, I hear there's a lot going on for you. Can you think which of these you'd like to focus on at the moment? And if you're supporting somebody who is clearly highly stressed, you know, that may take some time to get to that point. So just listening. We talk about reflecting. So reflecting what you're hearing. So if somebody says, I've got nobody to talk to, you might reflect back. It sounds like you're feeling very lonely. You know, so if somebody hears you say something like that, which basically lets them know that you've really heard them, not only that, you've put in a feeling word, you know, and that usually helps them whether it's conscious or unconscious, realize that this person has heard me and therefore I'm going to keep talking and I might actually go a little, tell them a bit more. And the more you listen and the more you reflect by reframing what you're hearing and, and sometimes people will use a lot of emotional words and other times they won't use any and it's up to you to pick them up and say, I'm wondering if you're frustrated or sounds like you're really angry. Um, you know, so reflecting the emotions you hear as well because the more people feel heard and understood, the more they're going to feel connected to you and start calming down because they feel you get them, as they say. We often get that feedback, this person got me. And those are the things we need to focus on in de-escalation, being there, focusing, being aware of what's going on for yourself, but without letting that interfere with the conversation. And at times, maybe having to take action and helping a person onto another service. So, yeah, I think that's what we focus on, really, and what we can all do. And what advice would you give to anyone or anyone who reaches out to you on Shout about having suicidal thoughts and where do they go from there? So you've had I've had a crisis conversation with you over text. I've said, I feel like I'm at the end of my tether. I just feel like giving up. After our initial crisis conversation, what's then the maintenance and the, the rebuild sort of program, as it were? Yeah, so I mean, when somebody takes in and, and we can't de-escalate them, we will, of course, refer them on. Um, and as I said, we do that in very few cases. But we, we like to think we leave each texter with a plan for their next step. So it might be as basic as, I'm going to get up and make a cup of tea. I mean, I've had texters like that, you know, what's the thing you can do? I know I'm going to get up and make a cup of tea. After, you know, they've talked through the issue and I can hear they're feeling a lot more calm. I've checked that out with them. And it might also be, I'm going to go and see the school counsellor tomorrow. Or I've had occasions where a young person has woken their parent up uh, to have a chat to them. But there is also a, a more formal way of ensuring they've got a plan for the future. And a safety plan goes has various you know, aspects to it. It starts off with what are your triggers, what will alert you to you know, the fact that you might be starting to become stressed or distressed. And then uh, what do you do to to distract yourself. Like if somebody asked me, I'd probably say, I'd go down to the local cafe and have a coffee. Whether that the caffeine helps or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, everybody's got their way of, of sort of distracting themselves. And then the next would be, who are the people you can talk to in your life? So it might be a friend. As I said earlier, everybody should have at least one person they can talk to. 
And if not, then who are the professionals you can talk to? That could be your GP, could be a crisis worker you've got already. It could be a service you're engaged in, a, a, a psychologist, you know, social worker, youth worker, a service like ours, you know, like Shout. Who are the services that you can reach out to? And then the emergency number. So it sort of takes you through managing yourself to your friends and your family or the person you can talk to and then the professionals that you can turn to, even if you never have before, and emergency services. And so for any listener that is really suffering with suicidal ideation and thinking, I just, I want to end it all, what would you say to them? What would your final words, leaving words on this episode be to them? I would say that in the moment, situations can feel you know, untenable, that you're not going to be able to resolve them. They can feel impossible. They can feel that you can't get around them or could be a grief issue. It's not always going to feel like that. And the best thing to do is to reach out for support, whether that's service like ours or whether it's emergency service or whether it's just a friend, is to reach out for support because that's a first step. And I would absolutely encourage people to do that. Just a text to A5258 to our service is all you have to do. Or pick up the phone to Samaritans or email them or any of the services out there. But don't struggle on your own. Reach out. And that's a very powerful message to end on. And I think it's a problem shared is often a problem solved. For any listeners who, again, are struggling, yeah, we emphasize that you reach out to Shout or the Samaritans, as Fiona said, and all the details are on the show notes. So, Fiona, you've, yeah, you're just a mind of information. And I'm sure so many people will find this episode absolutely fascinating. I certainly have. I just want to thank you for all the incredible work you do and continue to do. Thanks very much, Pandora. And thanks for all the incredible work you're doing as well. We need young voices like yourself in the area of mental health. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.